From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Ed Massey hosting today with the whole crew, Adi Weiner. Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, coming to you via Zoom on Tuesday afternoon. We are 48 hours after the kickoff or so of the Super Bowl. We've got that to cover. We've got still the repercussions of the NBA trade deadline, an eventful trade deadline to cover. And then we've got, obviously, you know, we've got things like the Phoenix Open golf tournament. Always fun. We've got some hockey to talk about. We've got some baseball. We've got some football. Be a fun two hours. Guys, we're going to get the show up tomorrow morning. Usually, as usual, Wednesday morning. Replay a few times on SiriusXM. We'll get a podcast up later in the day on Wednesday. But I'm curious, especially to hear your thoughts on the Super Bowl. One of us happens to have been in Phoenix, takes his whole crew, his whole brood, to the game, Eric taunting us with pictures in Phoenix with his boys. So, Eric, let's hear from you first. How'd it go out there, man? How was I, I, you know? At the end, it had to be disappointing, but the day, the game, how giddy were you at halftime? This must have been great. Well, I'll get to the giddy point at halftime in a second, but um, it was just a great football game, and um, I thought it was extremely competitive game. Um, I like the setup of the Super Bowl, which I, I wish they had enough space to do for every NFL stadium. They actually checked your tickets about a half a mile away from the stadium, which meant they never checked your tickets again. And then they could put lots of stuff around the stadium uh, because your tickets were already checked. That was nice. Um, I thought that there was a, a heavy, I'm going to say three to one Eagles fans at the game. Eagles fans seem to have traveled extremely well for this game. Um, in terms of my sentiment about the game, At halftime, I said to my kids, I'm concerned. I'm happy we're up 10, but let me say why I'm concerned. I said the following. The Eagles can't run the football. This is becoming a passing game. Jalen Hurts is playing great, but they're going to stop him from running in the second half. We're going to see what adjustments they make, and this is going to be a high-scoring game that I don't like the Eagles' chances in. I still mm-hmm. thought the Eagles were favored, but I didn't like the style of game. The Eagles, at one point in the fourth quarter, I looked up the scoreboard. The Eagles were averaging 2.3 yards per carry. The Chiefs were averaging 6.8 yards per carry. And I'm including yes. Jalen Hurts' runs in the game. The Eagles were averaging under three yards a carry. So I just felt that there would be too many opportunities for the Chiefs. Um, what happened in the second half? Um, you know, Shane has uh, talked about this number of times before on our show. Um, the Eagles didn't stop the Chiefs once in the second half. If you want to call McKinnon kneeling down at the two-yard line to run out the clock, stopping him, but I'm not counting that. They had four possessions and four touchdowns as far as I'm concerned. Um, they were scheme. I give Andy Reid a lot of credit. Guys were wide open all across the field in the second half in a way that they weren't in the first half. Um No, I I felt good at halftime, but I also felt disappointed. The Jalen Hurts fumble that led to seven. I think everyone felt the Eagles could have been up more than 10 points in the first half. The way the game, the missed field goal that was, uh, we we thought was a big momentum swing. So I actually didn't feel great because I thought the style of game 
was not going to turn in the Eagles' favor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like, I I do think I'm glad that you brought up kind of scheming because that as I watched that second half, and obviously Mahomes, they they execute incredibly well, and Mahomes had a great great half. Um, but it really it's the scheme. I, I I think this was like an Andy Reid masterclass. The way I mean, both those touchdowns, both of the two of those touchdowns in the second half were just incredible. I mean. You know, I could have made those throws. Those receivers were so wide open. Like, you know, it, it was really kind of brilliant scheming and and wide open receivers, especially on those touchdowns. It was, yeah, I, I was. Shane, let me just reiterate on that. Some, it'll be a good segue for Adi. So one of a student that Adi had last semester that I have now, Brandon Brooks, uh, in our MBA class, former lineman for the Eagles. Um, I spoke to him on Monday morning after I was back. His comment was that was an absolutely unstoppable coached master class in the second half. His comment was the schemes they drew up and his comments were nobody could have stopped those plays the way they ran them. So his comment, this is someone that played 10 years in the NFL, won a Super Bowl with the Eagles. His comment was, wow, you know, somebody better start giving Andy Reid some credit. Besides the fact that he now has two Super Bowl wins. Um, and I don't remember, you'll know, Shane, 10 championship games he's played in. So he's two and two in the Super yeah. Bowl, maybe nine championship games he's been to at least four with the Eagles, five. It's nine. So he's two and two in the Super Bowl, which last time I checked is 500. And he's four and five in the championship game. Last time I checked, very close to 500. So let's stop the narrative that Andy Reid can't win the big game. No, and it's, I just want to come. Oh. Well, it's interesting that that uh, um, that Andy Reid, was able to do this with the delay. I mean, this is what Eric Eager talked to us about last week. He said that he needs the time to kind of focus in on this team and create these gems that you don't particularly have in the, in that week. So is that what Brandon's referring to? No, he was referring to the halftime adjustments where uh-huh. in the first half, he thought the chiefs ran every single thing. The Eagles would think that the chiefs would run. And then in the second half, he said it was totally different. These were not plays they had run during the season he thought the schemes were different. The way guys were aligned were different. The crossing so, patterns were different. That's was that, what he was that was, was that halftime adjustments or was that the plan all along? Were they just well, yeah? No, I think it's more that he reserved the good stuff for the second half, right? Oh, not even just the good stuff. The breaking the breaking pattern. So you know what you're doing on the jet sweep during the season. What you do in the jet sweep in the first half sets up what you do differently with the faux jet sweep to get those two touchdowns so wide open. Oh. He didn't mention that. You could be right. I think it was I just, a coaching master class on both sides, actually. I think I give it because I, I love again. I want to kind of also call back to what Eric was talking. Eric Eager was talking about last week because he talked about not, you know, kind of different different types of coaching advantages that either team had. And Andy Reid is, of course, a, a brilliant schemer. And I think that really kind of came out in the Super Bowl. But I also think Nick Sirianni is really great at kind of in-game decision-making, taking chances at the appropriate time, et cetera. And I think that also came out. I mean, I, I you know, I, I again, I love, yep. I love the Eagles kind of general fourth down decision-making, et cetera. I mean, they did punt at one point in the fourth quarter that I disagreed with, but in general, the kind of in-game decision-making on the Eagles side was also, I think, really and generally very good. You know, but, you know, Eric's mentioned something about the, 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 decision-making on the Eagles side was the kind of stuff that, that, that they've been good at all season that are, that are, that are kind of invariant to the opponent, like the right, making the right calls on fourth down, which incredible about you see them playing and you know, you know, they got four downs all the time. 
They're not playing with three. And it's an amazing, amazing thing to watch. They're so bold. And and the other thing is that, you know, they can go fourth and two. And and for them, it's like fourth and one. And their fourth and ones are like essentially automatic. That is just incredible what they're able to do with the with the that whole motion of the of the of the offensive line. Everybody pushes them forward like like two yards. Um, And and I was a little bit um, surprised that uh, Sirianni didn't call for the go for it. Um, in the second quarter when they were, when they punted, I forget about the, about the 68 yard line, maybe 68 yard lines from the, from the end zone when they were in their own territory. And they had, I think, fourth and three, I think, I forget exactly what that play was. They the one I'm remembering punt. was in the fourth quarter and they punted from their own 30 at like fourth and two or something. Yes, like. that was, that's the one. Thanks. Thanks for yeah, in the fourth it, quarter. That was the one that was run back by Tony. Um, and, and yes, it was run back. And the, 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 it's an interesting one because the data suggests that, that, that going for it was, uh, was the, was the better move. Um, but what's interesting about it without a hundred percent, so far from a hundred percent certainty, because these models are not that accurate. Um, but it's su- definitely suggested, but the leverage on it was massive. In other words, um, succeeding there would be a, would bring a lot of win uh, win win oh. probability of and failing there is kind of bad. But they ended up with kind of the worst situation. Yeah. I just want to go back to something that Eric was talking about. With the it doesn't make sense to me that 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 Andy Reid would have like all this stuff prepared for the second half. Shouldn't he have prepared stuff for the first half too? Um, no, and, I didn't say no, that. No, he's, he's, no, but there there is there is pattern breaking. That's part yeah. of what happened, and that is part of the analysis on why those receivers were so open. Now, I'm not saying it's always first half to second half. Some of it is regular season to this, but what's on tape versus now. That is part of what happened. I don't know about the saving it or not, but part okay. of what happened is set up patterns and then break patterns. And then break so patterns. I just wanted to say, while I give Andy Reid credit for coaching, let me say he still can't do analytics. Number one, his uh, kicking that field goal attempt, which didn't make it in the first half, uh, the, 30, the 42-yard field goal we had at fourth and two, should have gone for it. Um, when they were up seven points and they decided to kick the extra point up seven with six minutes left to go in the game, which led to the Eagles going down and scoring six and two and tying it. If when he's up seven, he goes for two there and the Eagles hadn't stopped the Chiefs for anything. You go for two there, you go up nine, the game's probably over. So I thought he made a huge mistake going for well, one. I mean, isn't that really just kind of your counter that that specific decision is you have to believe that your team is better than the other team at specifically that two-point conversion right because you're kind of like you have to if you don't succeed you're taking the need for the other team to two-point convert out out yeah but i mean the other way to think about it is if you succeed you'd have to be much worse because if you make that two-point conversion and you're the chiefs the eagles are down nine with five six minutes left in the game which means they're not only going to need to score Obviously, then one or two is irrelevant, or it's not totally irrelevant. They'd go for one to go down two points instead of being down three. They'd have to onside kick, drive again. I just thought, I mean, I think I may even texted Adi at the time, and I, I forget if it was you, Adi, or maybe it was somebody else that texted me the how much win probability the Chiefs lost by going for one there versus two, up seven with six minutes left. I just thought it was a horrendous call, only possibly worse than the horrendous call in the first half when they didn't go for it fourth and two from the 25 and kicked the field goal didn't wasn't good anyway but I think both of those were analytics mistakes Mm. I'll say uh, something about myself I was revealed at the end of this game uh when the when the Phillies lost when the Eagles lost I was just like okay 
<laughs> I've adopted the Eagles as my my home home team, but it didn't it didn't hurt me the way the local the locals really were hurt by the loss. Oh, by God. the way, I, people have asked me since I've now been at I was at remember I was at Game Six of the World Series in Houston yeah. when the yeah. Phillies yeah. lost. Yeah, I was now at the Super Bowl where the Eagles lost. That's yeah. why I'm wearing my Sixers gear today. I promise all of our fans here on Wharton Moneyball, if the Sixers go to the final, I'll be there to see them lose. No, don't go. <laughs> don't go. Yeah, yeah. 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 And way, I'll be I'll here see. to remind you that the outcome doesn't depend on you. <laughs> well, were you it. at the Union? Were you at that Union final? Oh, no, no. Remember, yes, Shane. The right. Union, he was in, union. He hasn't no, confessed he, to that yet. No, yeah. the Union game was at the same time as Game Six of the World Series. My son Zach oh, and I were streaming it from Minute Maid Park. We were watching it <laughs> while we were sitting in the stadium. But my comment was, Adi, I didn't feel. Let me just say, to this day, my kids will tell you, the most horrible day I've ever had in sports was the 2001 World Series because the Yankees are a team I desperately care about. To me, the Phillies are my second favorite baseball team. The Eagles, I love the Eagles, but I'd be lying to our fans here who have listened to me eight and a half years talk about the Bucs. When your second favorite team loses, it just doesn't hurt as much. Of course, I was upset. I was upset for my kids. More I was about to ask, how, how strongly do your boys and do they all care equally? Are any of them bigger fans than the other? It's a good question. I think at this point, given how long it's been, they would pro- and, then, and, you know, this is something we can talk about. I think they would care. They would probably rather have a Phillies World Series win at this point than an, given the Eagles just won in 2007. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I sure. think the Phillies one might mean more to them. But this one was a tough one because, you know, I can make an argument in the World Series. I think the better team won in the World Series. I think the Astros were the better team. Oh, I'm right. not convinced. If I'm not convinced. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not clear if these two teams play a thousand times. I think the Chiefs win at least half. But the you know the line was about right. I mean, maybe the Eagles are slightly favored, but these were these were equal teams. That makes it even tougher. The World Series, the Phillies. Maybe we could argue got lucky to get to the World Series, and they put up a good fight. I wanted to kind of maybe we don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, but I'm intrigued by the fact that I mean I understand Yankees first. You're kind of baseball fan first or whatever. 01, that World Series hurts more than the 04 ALC. Much more, much more, much, much more. Because, much, much more. Because one was in the American League Championship Series. I understand the first team ever to lose down three love. Um, but we had Mario Mariano Rivera on the mound, three games all up three to two in the bottom of the ninth inning. Three time defending champ. We're starting to think, not that that wasn't a dynasty, but I'm thinking I'm ready to pop the champagne, four straight titles, five and six years. I'm thinking this is going to happen. And then the way it happened was really, really painful. So, yeah, for me, Shane, when my kids want to jump on my case, they always, matter of fact, as we were driving to Phoenix to the Super Bowl, they just said, you know, Dad, that's only a mile away from where the Yankees lost the 2001 World Series. <laughs> oh, no. Can I, it, it, thank you. So I have to say, Eric, that is, I agree with you. That's exactly my worst sports moment in my life is that is that particular moment. I was in my friend Uri's house and I have yet to walk into his that living room because of it. It brings me post-traumatic stress to walk oh, to, to sit there. I've been in the dining room, but never in that, that TV room because it just hurt so much. It was such a bad loss. And it was 2001. It was the, it was the you know, 9-11 and the Yankees. And it was so much uh, New York. Anyway, enough said. <laughs> yeah. Shane, do you have such a singular loss in your history? Yeah. 2007, the Super Bowl. Perfect season. Mm, oh, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. 
Hell yeah. I mean, yeah. It's funny. It's like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, 03, the 03 loss in the ALCS to the Yankees, the Aaron Boone home run would probably be number two. Um, and again, for both of them, it's like, you know, kind of, I guess, similar to these guys, it's framed against, there's, there's obviously been a lot of success. I've, I've watched a lot of success with both the Red Sox and the Patriots. But yeah, I mean, losing the perfect season. Yeah, uh, no topping that, I think. That's maybe yeah, the most funny. I've ever pulled. The most I've ever funny. pulled for the Giants, Shane. Sorry, buddy. I wonder well, whether. I mean, yeah, I, I realize you know it's it, that's a very Patriots specific choice right there. But I think looking forward now, you know, we have to look forward to future seasons. There's no reason to believe that the Chiefs. I, I'm making up a number of years. Next three to five years won't be the lead favorite in the AFC. At least I mean, it could be longer. But I mean, if you told me that the Chiefs in the next five years go to another two or three Super Bowls and maybe win one or two, that wouldn't surprise yeah. me tremendously. Um, I see no evidence that Patrick Mahomes isn't getting potentially better. He's only. Eric, do, you put, do you think there's more persistence in the Chiefs' future than the Eagles? Yes. Yes, Why? I do. I do. Um, I've got a reason. I, Here's number one reason is that Mahomes is already on his senior contract and and Hurts is not yeah. yet. So. They, the Chiefs have already demonstrated an ability to adapt to a high-paid quarterback. And that's the, the reason, State. actually, I was going to give was that, you know, and I was even thinking the following, and, you know, it's a great topic for future discussion. Let's imagine I told you you have two options. Kate, I love you, given your expertise in the draft. Here's your two options. You can sign Jalen Hurts to four years and $200 million guaranteed, or you franchise tag Jalen Hurts and you draft another quarterback to find out, it's not Gardner Minshew, you draft another quarterback. Remember, we have the 10 pick and their own pick. You draft another quarterback. Maybe you win the randomness sweepstakes and that quarterback you get on a cheap budget. And it turns out that that quarterback is as good as Jalen Hurts. So strong opinions all around. Real quickly, we're running out of time. Adi. Well, I mean, should the the Eagles be uh, drafting a quarterback? Hermsmeyer said they should. Would we be talking this way if like, you know, the minutia had gone a little different in Super Bowl MVP. You know, I have to say, I feel like, yes, I think we should. I feel like uh, he doesn't have the arm for, for a giant contract. I mean, that, that, that throw down the field, he couldn't throw in the end zone from the 40 yard line. He slipped on the, tur- whatever that was. I mean, yeah. Okay. He slipped on the turf. Like they did every other play, but yeah. 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 I, I, and I just want to kind of mention one reason I kind of think, uh, that that I wouldn't project the Chiefs for like another ten years of this same behavior. Is I that, said three to five. Yeah, that's right. And but three to five is already pushing. I think Andy Reid's time as head coach for sure. I would be shocked if Travis Kelsey is still doing what he's doing in five years, given the physicality of that position. And he's thirty three. And he's thirty three. And so I think those are a couple pieces that I mean I think Mahomes will still be great in five years, certainly, but. Again, we don't want to take away from, you know, the uncertainty involved with kind of the team building aspect. And there are some parts that perhaps are not as replaceable on that team, like the coach and some of the skilled players. I don't necessarily, I'm not ready to pencil in. If they go to, you know, have another five year, it's possible they have another five years like they just had. I just, my prediction is the next five years for the Chiefs is not as good as the five years that they But I think you bring up a great point, Shane, if, you know, the Eagles had stopped the Chiefs on the last drive. We go down and win the game. Am I still saying the same thing about Jalen Hurts? I can say for myself, I am, 
because I was not as focused on the outcome. I'm just questioning. I'm not questioning whether he's a very, very, very good quarterback. I'm questioning whether he's elite. Is he worth $50 million a year given the salary cap? And is it possible to get someone as good as Jalen Hurts by flipping a coin and taking a one-year $40 million bet on him rather than four years and 200? I'm just asking the question. That's all. Yeah. Well, and and the more com- the most complete version of it is you have to ask the portfolio. The whole roster is going to be different if you sign him versus if you don't. You can so it's like Hertz and a different roster or a, a rookie quarterback for the next few years with more or less the same roster. That's that's really what it comes down to. And it, it the the answer is always going to be some version of how good does that guy have to be? It's it's much better than the historical people have signed quarterbacks that didn't reach the level that they really needed to justify. And it's a high level. I don't know whether Hertz is there or not. They they see more of him. They know much more about him. Can he keep on getting better? Do do they have the full offense at his disposal? Are they constrained in some way? Is it changing? Um, what how much what what is his impact on the locker room? They talk about the intangibles. Maybe that's there. They would have insight into all those things, and they matter. Agree. But it's a it's a terrifically important and difficult. And we have every question. reason to trust Roseman and Halabi to make that decision. They've, 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 they've demonstrated their ability to do it. All right, guys, that's been Q1. That's Super Bowl talk. We'll do a little bit more next quarter with Seth Walder, and then we'll roll to some other sports. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second quarter. We've got the whole crew in here for the whole show. We were missing Eric last week. Often we're all four here via the magic of Zoom, and we are first quarter, second quarter, and later as well. We are joined this quarter by Seth Walder. Seth is a longtime writer at ESPN, longtime friend of the show. We have him on frequently. I, I right or wrong, Seth, I think of you as kind of the voice of the analytics group at ESPN. You're the translator almost to some extent. I know you do some analytics. I think and some- and some of those guys communicate, but you're kind of the translator for the analytics group at ESPN, at least in my eyes. Is that fair? That's fair. No, I think that I think that's fair. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people say, but this is radio, so voice works, you know. <laughs> a translator is an important role. I think it's an underappreciated role and an, an increasingly common role to have a bridge between a, a technical group and people who use the information. Um, and you've been doing a great job of it for a long time. Hey, we want to check in with you. Um, one on the Super Bowl, of course. We're only forty-eight hours after the game. How how are, how's it sitting with you? What was your experience? Did you have a rooting interest in that game? It was a, it was a it was a good game. Uh, I I didn't have like a real rooting interest. I th- I picked the Eagles. I felt really strongly about the Eagles going into the playoffs. I felt really good about them in the divisional round and the conference championship. And then I wasn't so sure about the Chiefs here. I just really Seth, enjoyed- real quickly, real quickly. What was the basis for your confidence in the Eagles? What was it that you were seeing in the numbers or in the film when you watched them that had you so confident? They're just such a complete team, and I think that's the reason why I liked watching them. They're Pass rush was unbelievable. And I think we know that because of the sacks, but their advanced numbers were that way too. Their corners were incredible. James Bradbury, I mean, I hate to see his season end the way it did. He put up some just incredible numbers as a corner this season. In my view, uh, the best cornerback in the league this year. And I think certainly he and Slay were the best two corners. 
Uh, like across the board of the defense, like it's really hard to distribute credit there. Like TJ Edwards, the linebacker was really good this season. Uh, Brandon Graham was a rotational pass rusher for them. And he, his numbers were monstrous. I mean, his pass rush win rate would have ranked third at edge if he had like qualified. He was only a part-time player. So he didn't, he didn't, but like, that's the guy that was coming off the bench for you. And that's that's just the defense. Then they're offensively, they were they were so good. They had a good offensive line. AJ Brown and Devontae Smith were incredible. And Jalen Hurts was in a good situation and maximized it. So I just felt like one to fifty three. That team was so awesome. Mm-hmm. So there you are. You were confident. You weren't sure about the Chiefs, and then the game unfolds, and you're really thinking your money at halftime. You're thinking, I I saw this so clearly. I'm such a good analyst. And then what happened? Yeah. And then, and then what happened is uh, you go pick against Patrick Mahomes and Patrick Mahomes shows you <laughs> what to okay, do. Here, hey, I are, we giving, are we giving him too much credit? I mean, we, we all think Mahomes is amazing, but he is quarterbacking for a guy who seems to be pretty good at scheming up offenses. Among also, other people. I don't know. Worth, worth mentioning, I think, and maybe Seth, I'd like your, your perspective on this, the role that how awful the field was, and how it got progressively worse as the game went on. You know, I mean, again, we were expecting pass rushes on both sides of the ball, and those never materialized. And I can't decide how much of that was just offensive lines being awesome, and they're two great offensive lines. But you, you could, it was clear the athletes weren't getting much traction, and that's got to affect a pass rush substantially. I think I think somewhat. I, I like I I think that somewhat that definitely was a factor. It's kind of like a snow game where like offense is sneakily productive in in snow. Uh, and so I think I think to your point, yeah, I think that's right. But I think Patrick Mahomes is amazing. You you're saying give him too much credit. They traded away Tyreek Hill, and he was and he was still still the same guy. So Seth, to be fair, I, I think he's amazing and fantastic, but I do stand by, we almost always give quarterbacks too much credit. And so without even knowing the quarterback, I, I believe that we give them too much credit. And we give them too much blame when they lose. Um, now, what, an important exception might be Brady and Belichick. I don't know. We might have learned over time that Brady deserved even more of that than, than we were giving him real time, given how much we thought of Belichick. But that's we're getting into the weeds. Seth. Give us a couple of other observations on the Super Bowl, and then let's back up and talk about the season. Okay, you mentioned the the pass rush, right? And so certainly part of us, part of it is is what you said, the field. But to me, going into that game, everybody's talking about the Eagles' pass rush, and this team is not just the sacks; they were number one in pass rush win rate. Like they were winning snap to snap, uh, no question, elite elite group. But they didn't sack Patrick Mahomes once, and I think it's a really important reminder that. When trying to forecast sacks, which is something that I've spent an oddly a, quite a lot of time focusing on, uh, I, I find I find the the statistic really kind of interesting. The offense and the quarterback and the situation all play really important roles in addition to the pass rushers themselves. And there is we had the Chiefs' offensive line as the best pass blocking offensive line in the league, and Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback at sack avoidance. I mean, he's incredible. Just 11% of pressures. So this is pressures against him were converted into sacks this season. That's something he's been good at his entire career. And that is a key, a key factor. And also the Eagles were not, they were up by 10 uh, at halftime, but you didn't have that late situation where the Eagles were ahead, which is where the offenses get desperate. That's when sacks happen. And that happened in so many Eagles games this year, but not the Super Bowl. 
Mm -hmm. How good are we at parsing credit between an offensive line and a quarterback? The fact that you were talking about how good Mahomes is, but then you went said the Chiefs were the number one. It's like now I think you're probably biased in your beliefs about the Chiefs offensive line because Mahomes is so good at individually avoiding it. I would or, or, or have we gotten good at I would like to think that our win rates are a pretty good measure way to separate those two things. So in okay. the, in the, with the win rates, we're just measuring how often the offensive line is sustaining its block at two and a half seconds. And so to me, I think that you, you look at the win rates and sack rates and there's a correlation, but it's, there could be di- like serious divergences there. And we have, we have quarterbacks who take lots of sacks behind good offensive lines and vice versa. And or at least according to the win rates. And so I do think that in this case, we are looking at both both being true, Mahomes being good at avoiding sacks and the offensive line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always that case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, are we going to ensemble this and average them, or is there is there one that's more than the other? I've always heard, always have been hearing the quarterback, that sack is a quarterback stat. Are you saying that it's a mixture? Uh, and if they're not, a, obviously a mixture, but what gets more? The quarterback. I don't have like exact like uh, coefficients I can throw at you, but but like I have a model that predicts sacks on a weekly basis. And so I look at this and both measures are useful. Quarterbacks ability to quarterback sack rate or or something close to it uh, in the pass buck win rate. They're both useful, but uh, the quarterbacks, I think, ability is the, the most important factor of those two. Well, speaking of quarterbacks, you've also got this piece up recently about MVP voting and you're taking advantage of, you're actually lauding the fact that there people are going deeper now, but you did your own analysis to come up with your own ballot and you went a hundred, I think you went a hundred players deep. Is that right? So tell us about this analysis you did. I, I did. I basically said, I, I think I might've pitched this even before they expanded the idea, expanded the, the ballot to five players. But when they did, I thought, you know, five is five is fun. That's good. You might sneak in a a non-quarterback. So that's that's cool. But like you kind of want to go further. And I think the way the like Slack conversation with my editors went, I was like, if five is good, you know, what about 10, 10, 10, 25? Maybe we go 50. (laughs) All right. Actually, if we're gonna go 50, we might as well just do the whole let's go a hundred. Let's just do it. And uh they 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 relented and let me. Um I think what's really fun about and interesting is the way you try and reconcile positional value here. And there's no, there's no magic formula for this. Uh, And, and that's the question to me. That's why I I find the down ballot stuff. So interesting quarterbacks are the highest leverage. So by almost definition, the best quarterback is the most valuable player in the league. Uh What about the, what about the ninth best quarterback against the first best wide receiver and and those kinds of questions. And so I'm relying on all sorts of metrics here, but also, you know, some, some feel and some intuition about positional value. And and I talked to people in the league uh, and showed them my list and they said, you're crazy for this one. And this guy's too low. And I, I thought that was like, to me, that sort of crowdsourcing was, was useful data points. And so I've got this insane list of one, one to a hundred, which I'm like pretty, pretty happy about. I think. Does, how does TJ Hawkinson feel about your list? He was, you know, what's hilarious is that. I, so he snuck on at the last minute. I this might have been the night before. I, I decided to sub him in, put him at number one hundred. 
I'm I'll, I'm sorry to Frankie Luvu, Panthers linebacker. You were the guy that got bumped at the last second. Um, <laughs> you know, it's hilarious is that I think someone I I I saw some tweets. People were upset that Hawkinson had made the list, which I think surprised surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, my I was I was thinking about it. It's like, well, at least they read to a hundred, you know. That's right. Exactly. So what, what did you learn in the process, especially you, you, you build your list and then you talk, you talk to people and you revise your list. Who are you putting a stake in the ground on that you think is most controversial or you might think is most insightful? So Bradbury, who I already mentioned, yeah, he's there at 19 and I had him higher and people in the league convinced me that that was a little bit much. Uh, to me, his numbers uh, as from the NFL next gen stats and their, their nearest defender numbers. So uh, they come with all sorts of caveats, but he was the first best player in every, every metric. And and to me, the most basic useful corner metric is yards allowed per coverage snap, because we have to account for non-targets, right? We not, right. not being targeted is a good thing. And, and he's, he's first basically every way you look at it. And so I think he was certainly a stake in the ground guy where I just felt like, being an incredible corner, not allowing opponents to throw on you, that is a super valuable spot. If I felt more confident in our ability to evaluate corners, he would be higher. I'm sort of allowing some buffer for uncertainty. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I'm kind of like, to the extent that you feel uncertain about that positional position or, or the pushback that you've gotten on that particular position uh, for him, is it kind of disagreement that he actually is the best of the cornerbacks or is it disagreement that no cornerback, no matter how good, should be as high as 19. And does it get kind of more back to, again, sort of how we weight positions or how we weight players within a position? The former. I think that a corner is a very valuable position, could easily be the be- the most valuable defender. And I think people in the league would say that too. It's, I think, that it's more about was Bradbury the best and and at least to me, in my mind, the way I think about these things is, do I have more uncertainty about our ability to evaluate him? So, no, that's mm-hmm. a good, but I think, yeah, you could absolutely be the most valuable defender as a corner. And I mean, sure. I guess that's kind of a specific example. The more general question I, I, I had when I we were talking about your ranking overall is, is when you went into this exercise, were you kind of just building it from like number one down where you're like, okay, here's Patrick Mahomes at number one. And then like, you know, who's the best among the remaining players? Or did you have in your mind, I need to have at least 15 quarterbacks. I need to have at least 10 linemen, et cetera. Like, were you factoring position kind of into the rep? You, you wanted to kind of represent all the positions in the hundred. Again, I guess I'm still kind of wondering holistically how you thought about position in this entire enterprise. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, first, I just want to throw out to, to as for your previous question, one other piece of feedback I got. Some people, no one said Sauce Gardner, who I had at 20, was too high. And multiple people, I, I think it was multiple, or the only feedback I got on him was, you know, you might be too low on him. So I think that indicates uh, that a corner could be higher. As far as, here's how I thought about it. I think you can go multiple ways here. I thought about it as what's the difference in value between this player and an average starter at their position? I think you can, and and again, I think there's multiple, there's very good arguments for doing that in different ways. To me, that basically means you should probably have every position on there. I didn't have a, a kicker or a punter, and I, I think you could have, I could have. Um, and so 
thinking about it that way, I, I did try and say, okay, ballpark, what does that mean? What do I think? That means I should probably have something like 14 quarterbacks-ish, right? Because I'm thinking, well, if 16, 17 is kind of pure neutral, they don't help or hurt. You know, anyone below average, right? You, you're you're a relative negative, so you shouldn't be on this list. Uh, and I, and again, I think with quarter, you could make the case they should be. Then I thought, okay, but the quarterback is super high leverage, so even being just a little bit above average should get you into that into that top 100. And then, how am I thinking about this with the other positions? Now I'm sort of stacking them. So, wide receiver is probably the next most valuable position, and you're starting more of them at a given time. So I'm thinking about that. And then maybe corner and edge rusher and tackle are, are next, but those are just to give myself kind of ballparks. Yeah. So and just thank everybody, of, my position, and then go ahead. Sorry. Make it sound more statistically formal. Essentially what you're trying to do is uh, estimate a Z score for every single player. Like yeah. there's Z score in the distribution of their position. And that's kind of where, you know, if, if we could somehow, actually have have those z z scores properly estimated that would be kind of a way of you know kind of handling position in these rankings absolutely but to me it's like that's one of the reasons why i love football and why i love awards and i love lists is like these are these are hard questions they're unanswered questions and i'm giving best guesses here but that's what makes it interesting so Seth, you wrote this a few weeks before the Super Bowl, and then you had some nice um, matchups kind of from the list in the Super Bowl. Real quickly, Brown versus Kelsey. A.G. Brown, number 13 for the Eagles. Kelsey, number 14 for the Chiefs. They face off, you know, not on the field at the same time, but, you know, playing for their respective offenses. How do you think they – were you proud of your selections by the end of the game? Did you get the ordering right? They're right next to each other on your list. <laughs> oh, good question. Uh you know brown i mean that one pass deep ball to brown and yeah. that was all him because i really don't think that was a great pass and yeah he, he made that play he traffic so well i mean that was impressive right and like one of the things i think that's amazing about brown is like being open all the time and that wasn't even the case on that play but he still made the catch and then kelsey like with kelsey i think this is one where i originally had him a little bit lower. And then I was thinking about the positional value and thinking about how, how different a tight end he is at tight end compared to the average NFL tight end, particularly this year when tight end production was down. Did I have him in the right order? Oh man. I don't know. <laughs> so good. Having um, him right. lower kind of feeds into his ethos of like, nobody believes in him or the chiefs, which apparently, apparently <laughs> he, he claims after the wins. So Again, I guess you're kind of feeding into his ethos of being, uh, you know, ranked lower than he should be. That's right. It was a Seth Wilder effect. He was really on about on the podium after the game. Uh, Seth, you mentioned getting open. Um, and I know you've thought some about this statistical analysis that Brian Burke did in the offseason, decomposing wide receiver performance between getting open, catching the ball in the yards after catch. Terrific, you know, objective, using next-gen stats, all that stuff really kind of fun at the beginning of the year to hear about that. What's your assessment of that decomposition, the value of that analysis a season in? I'm really excited about it. I think if you go to the one, one thing that's fun is if folks don't know, this is publicly available um, on 538, our, our receiver tracking metrics, which break down players by open their ability to get open, make the catch and generate yak all relative to expectations uh, based on a variety of factors about the, the play and situation. 
uh, one, um, my takeaways are firstly, like there are fewer surprises than I, I thought there were going to be. And sort of like where we have this very complex metric and you just, you sometimes, and you just think, well, there's going to be a really weird one. Right. And I don't think, I think there's players on here that stand out. I think there are guys like uh, Chris Olave being in the, in the top 10 overall or, or Deontay Johnson, or maybe Tyler Lockett that are a little bit surprising, but I think everyone knows they're good players. And so <clears throat> that sort of like face validity, I think was, was kind of interesting. I think particularly with evaluating some of these guys that don't have great quarterbacks, that's where it really stood out. So Olave and Garrett Wilson uh, right. players and Deontay Johnson guy guys like that, who have managed to, we're talking about your ability to get open, right? So that's, on every play, targeted or not, we're trying to we're trying to isolate from the quarterback, and we right. know how much the quarterback matters. So, I think that that is interesting. And the last one I'll mention off the top of my head here is what I first wrote about with these. It is hard for me not to notice Tyler Lockett being as high as he is, as high as he was uh, in in previous seasons. You know, Metcalf always comes out strong, and then Russell Wilson goes away from those guys. And I'm not saying like Tyler Lockett made Russell Wilson and and now he doesn't have him, but it's like, it's interesting that that, that, that did happen. And yeah, yeah, there's, right. there's good things about the you know receivers in Denver, but uh, I, I do wonder if we've this entire time, we've been underrating the receivers in, in Seattle. Well, it goes, it goes to, um, it goes to this, the, the idea that we, you know, we give credit and blame too much to the quarterback. And this is a highly inter- interdependent game. And so yet another example, um, real quickly, do we have any sense of the relative importance to the team of those three different aspects of wide receiver play? Uh, I think open score in order. I think it's, it's open score, then catch score, then yak score is what I would say. They certainly, that's how they correlate to yards per route. Um, and open score is roughly twice as important as the other two. So um, I think what you asked is close to that. It's a little bit different, like your impact to the team, but I would, I would say that your ability to get open, I think is going to be the most important for the team. Okay. So one follow-up and then, and then Shane and Eric are both trying to get in. Um, Do, are they differently distributed? Is there, is one, is any one of those more scarce than the other? And that may be a hard thing to assess, but that would be, you know, even if yards after catch is only half as valuable by Brian's measure Mm -hmm. as getting open. If some guys are more scarce, they can do that. And more uniquely, they might be valued. That's a great question. So I guess with Yak, this has been true for multiple years in a row where Debo Samuel is so far and beyond everybody else. And that, I think that's, that's sort of what you're talking about, right? Where you're like, yeah, yeah, it's a, it is a rare skill in some ways. I think what happens though, is like he almost, the scales are such that, it looks compressed because of Debo. Uh, when we, when we, when, when Brian made the, when Brian made the scales, it was affected by the fact that his twenty Debo Samuel's twenty twenty one was uh, so off the charts. But I do think that, yeah, that is one situation where it's like we have one player that has gone so far beyond uh, what where everybody else is. 
And I guess, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, another, another factor in this is, you know, the extent that coaching and scheming kind of is confounded in these measures. Do you think that that, you know, and given that openness is, is, is probably both the most important, as you're saying, but also probably the most influenced by scheming, is that kind of like, it's, it's kind of the most important aspect of receiving, but is it the least attributable to the player? I mean, it's still obviously some part the player, but I, I would assume that's the kind of the part where coaching and scheming can have the most kind of effect, you know, even controlling for the player. I think so. Ideally, we're separating them and certainly we're controlling for the route, that, the, the route type you're running yeah. and, and the defensive coverage that you're going against. But I think we would be naive to think that the scheme is not playing a role there. I think like one guy that stands out to me, Darius Slayton, uh, Giants receiver, had one of the worst open scores in the league last year and was below average sort of all throughout his career prior to this season. He's in a new system this year. And if you look at the routes that he runs, he really changed, they really changed his route profile. And all of a sudden, his open score popped, like it's to, to 67 this year. Now, now everything improved for him, like right? all his baseline, like regular statistics were all so much better this year. Was it, was it that he got better? Was it just the scheme change? Probably, probably both. Like, I, I think it would be hard for him to have not like truly improved uh, to have the season that he did, but did, did the scheme change help? Or maybe was it even like, what if, it's not necessarily that the scheme got him open, but the scheme previously was not tailored to his skills. And now he is being asked to do something that is more in line with what, where he excels. Yeah. Or the scheme previously was just overall terrible. And therefore the Daniel Jones is like, you know, like half the time previously Daniel Jones is trying to force it to him, even though he's not open, which is going to make, you know, the whole situation look worse. That's true, though. This is graded on every route rather than just uh, rather than just targets. But yeah, right, right. Seth, one last topic for you. And this is this is a big one we could spend the next six months talking about. But just on the way out, let's get your thoughts, because we're moving into NFL draft season. And of course, fascinating on lots of fronts, but quarterbacks are always topic number one. And this year, definitely topic number one. And um, we've seen. Here, Jalen Hurts is doing what Jalen Hurts has done. And it strikes me that he is the second prominent quarterback in the last recent past who's shown the ability to really kind of outperform in the NFL what he was doing at college, despite a generation or more of wisdom that said that doesn't happen. So Josh Allen is a known example, a counterexample to that, and kind of breaking the model we had. And then here comes Jalen Hurts, and there's another one. And it, it just raises for me the question of, have, do we, are we doing something different with quarterback development these days? Or are these guys true exceptions? Are we developing quarterbacks in a way? And, of course, it's relevant as we go into the draft because if, if it's the case that we can now develop guys better than we used to, then they're going to start drafting quarterbacks from college who didn't show, you know, didn't produce, but has the skills, the talent. And it's, it's, it's risky in a way it's, it's, you know, guys who fall in love with an arm, guys who fall in love with a body and, but maybe that's okay. Now, maybe it's more okay than it used to be because we're all of a sudden better at developing QBs. Are Hertz and Allen demonstrative of a new and better process? Or are they individually exceptions? What a good question that I have no idea the answer to. Oh man, I'm, 
it's interesting. You know, in both cases, I'm thinking about, I, I, I want to say this in the right way because I don't want to take away credit because, but like they're both put in really good situations. Goes back mm-hmm. to Kate's point, right? About like quarterbacks not being everything, but you talk about guys who had, who were put in situations where they had good pass protection and good receivers and, mm-hmm. and that, that helps. But like that, I'm trying to say that just, you can drop anyone into this Eagles team and that they're going to play like Jalen Hurts did. Cause that's definitely not true. Mm-hmm. The question is, is, are we better at quarterback development? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to give it. I don't want to say something because I think it's a good question and I don't, I don't want to, I don't know. That might be true. <laughs> what do you now? I mean, question. What do you think, Cade? I do think we're getting better. Um, I think we're, 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 we're obviously analytically smarter, technically smarter, biomechanically smarter. Um, these guys, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not so much mechanical development as it is schematically deploying them better. And there's something about, I think that might have, have ticked up now. I could be completely full of it, but if I had to I, hypothesize, I'd say. No, I was just wondering, Seth, if you thought the following analysis very simple could do, let's imagine we assume that the ratings, you know, whether it's Kuiper or, uh, I forget the other guy that does it, but the, uh, who's the other guy? Yeah. Who's the other person? Todd McShay. McShay. Let's imagine we took their rankings or ratings as something that's fairly constant over time. And then we looked at the performance as a function of draft rankings. And if we saw a trajectory that was higher, like 92s today do better in years one, two, and three on a whole set of metrics than previous 92s, it could be that there's a drift in the rankings or those rankings could be constant and given the same input, people are performing better. Would that analysis, I mean, would it make it on the air at ESPN? How do you think about that? My gut says you're right, but I don't don't know. And then what do you think about like a guy who's like a 78? Is, do we think that it's like, everywhere across the board because like yeah, josh Allen is very highly rated yeah and it hurts and hurts and hurts less so and and less so it's a, it's, it's a related point. question but it's not the same question but eric i can speak to it a little bit you could ask the more general question of just how predictive is draft order of nfl career performance and is that relationship strengthening over time so just that's another example, nice way to put it i was going to condition on score by some by some judge but i'm happy with uh, rank position as well. Yeah, but just take some theory is true. It, it's also possible that if we're better at developing, that could lessen the weaken the relationship with that's draft. Right. Yeah, because you got to. I think it's different. I agree. I think it's different from the development question. But I I can tell you that over a long period of time, I haven't run this analysis in a while. But that relation, just call it a correlation of some kind between draft order and career performance it was flat for 30 years or just barely moved for 30 years. Like the advent of the computer, all the data, all the attention the media gives didn't make any difference in the predictive quality of the draft for a player's long-term performance. It's just kind of striking. I think it just speaks to the difficulty of the enterprise. It's irreducible uncertainty. We think we can figure these things out with perfection and there's just a certain degree of uncertainty that's irreducible. Um, all right, Seth, we're going to have to let you go, man. Uh, fun to talk to you. It sounds like we're going to see you in Boston in a few weeks at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference for the first time in a few years. Glad about that. We'll look for you. But thank you for making time for us here this afternoon. 
Thank you guys. Looking forward to seeing you. Absolutely. Seth Walder, and that has been two quarters, the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another interview segment. Delighted to have Neil Payne back on the show. Neil, longtime friend of the show. Damn near a midwife of the show. He was there in the beginning. We, but I, if I he don't think I've ever been the, called a midwife before. <laughs> Dion usually gets credit as midwife of this show, but you were there. You were at least a nurse. But as we in the room. Flip it around, man. And we were there at the beginning of 538, right? Because you were that was the launch. We kind of we kind of launched at the same time. That's um, right. So Neil Payne's back with us. As many listeners know, Neil is longtime editor and writer at 538. He is now acting sports editor at 538. And he's a recent transplant from the Northeast to the South. I don't know if Arkansas really counts as the deep South, but it's definitely South. It's almost its own little corner of the world, especially up in up, up where you are. But anyway, Neil, delighted to have you always. How are things going for you today? It's going great. Thank you guys for having me as always. And uh, yeah, I think I've heard that it's the Mid-South, which is an interesting region that I'm not sure is a real thing, but uh, I'll, I'll take it. Maybe maybe that, maybe Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, Southern Missouri, maybe that counts as Mid-South. That's reasonable. Not crazy. I've also heard the Old Southwest, which uh, I guess dates back to when there was no like Western part of the country and this was considered the Southwest and maybe the uh, like Southwestern Conference also was somehow um, in in that uh, centered in that region. Right. I like the Old Southwest because it's tricky. You think it's going to be Old South and it just keeps on going into Old Southwest. <laughs> it's where it works because Arkansas and Oklahoma, Texas, they do have a kinship in that way. And and. uh Anyway, so we're going to see some, speaking of the Southwest Conference, you want to just talk about college football? Let's just scrap the agenda and just talk college football. But only yeah. specifically from the time in which the Southwest Conference existed. So, you know, back <laughs> pre-Big 12. That's that's the sweet spot for me, Neil. I can do it. What do you, who, who do you want to talk about? Let's talk about um, Rice. Let's talk about SMU. Yeah, yeah. good. Okay. Um well, uh, instead of that, we'll do that on another <laughs> show. That'd be fun. Um, we're going to talk about basketball because the trade deadline was last week and the NBA trade trade deadline has gotten real dang interesting. We talked about the Kyrie Irving show trade on the show last week because it had happened earlier over the weekend, I think. But then some more things went down. Uh, in fact, with the Nets kept on going down. But more broadly, we just wanted kind of a reset on the NBA landscape this side of the deadline. And we thought 538 was the right place to go. Y'all produce a model. You update your model continuously. You know, it's a great model, but it's also one that we like to take, you know, jabs at. It's provocative in that way. I think it's good. I think it's good for discourse in that way. But every now and then we needed to explain to us. And last year we were whinging all year long about seeming overconfidence of the model. This year we come to you more just looking for education. Tell us about <laughs> what we should know about the change in the landscape as, as a result of the trade deadline. Yeah, so the trade deadline, I think it was one of the more active ones that I can remember, certainly in terms of big names. Um, I think it was the first time that three separate uh, eight 
plus time all-stars had been traded in the same deadline, which is kind of an arbitrary stat, but I think it gives you a little bit of a sense of the, the name power, the, the name brand recognition of the guys that were on the move. You mentioned uh, Kyrie Irving and the, the comparison with that and the Kevin Durant trade to the Phoenix Suns. That's an interesting one for a model that I think probably was the the one that was maybe the biggest head scratcher sort of eye opener for me about like why those two teams didn't receive equal bounces in the model after the trades were done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some of it had to do with the Mavericks. This is a team that I think statistical models have always been pretty high on uh, and, and ours certainly was even in preseason. And some of that has to do with Luka Doncic, his, his individual numbers are off the charts and the a statistical model will sort of see that as like an unqualified good thing. I think a lot of basketball experts see that as maybe a little bit of a, too much of a good thing. And that it was a sign that there wasn't enough around uh, Luca to be able to take the pressure off of him, especially with Jalen Brunson gone to the New York Knicks uh, over the off season. And that's where Kyrie Irving comes in and a guy that can help him take some of the pressure off of him uh, when he's available. And that's the other big aspect that I think is um, really just impossible. I think for any model that's based on player ratings to be able to fully account for because the way our model works, and we've talked about it a number of times, it accounts for injuries. It accounts for players that are, you know, doing load management and they maybe even have a tendency for load management. We can bake that in, but we can't really properly bake in the possibility. And in Kyrie's case, really strongly non-zero probability that something will happen with him that whether he's suspended, he'll say something, he'll take himself out of the lineup for an amount of time. He has had injuries in the past. You, You have to account for those as well. But just all the myriad different ways that a player like him, who is stellar when he is available, and he's actually having a fantastic season this year, even his defense in our Raptor metric is above average, and that's kind of uh, not the norm for him, uh, traditionally speaking. Uh, There's just not a great way to be able to bake in the, like, endorses an anti-Semitic video on Amazon and uh, is suspended by the league for a period of time or by his team for a period of time in a way that really when you're dealing with a player-based model, you kind of have to have something like that if you're going to account for his absence, because when he is available, his rating is is very high. And he, uh, in some ways, I think he, uh, this is one of the best seasons he's ever had, some of the best he's ever played when available. So, Neil, real quickly, but is it not the case? I know he, he's a special case in many ways. Um, setting some of that aside, let's just understand the model. Availability is a major input in these bottom-up basketball models, right? I mean, you're explicitly modeling, at least you're explicitly modeling playing time. That's a that's an important part of the whole thing. So right. you can well, the aspect of it that we do kind of control is like how many minutes per game someone will be available for or used for, you know, at the coach's discretion. And then when there's a known injury, we can have a, or a known absence of any kind of sort, we can set the player to be out. What we can't do, and maybe you can make the case that other models, you know, a, another level of sophistication to this one even could include is some kind of propensity for 
injury certainly yeah, and sure. that's something we've experimented with in the past and and set people at like you know some percent of of uh, availability past a certain window of weeks yeah. into the future but yeah. the propensity for a suspension or some other kind of off-court behavior that lends itself to unavailability that's a very that's almost like an ethical question right in a model like this is do you preemptively assume that Kyrie Irving because of his you know, predispositions to um, uh, certain things would be more inclined to miss games for a reason of a non currently known injury. You see what I'm saying? Like you can know the injuries that are in place right now and account for those. But then when you get into projecting future ones, but also not just injuries, but projecting future suspensions for certain things, you get into weird territory. Yeah. But I mean, real quickly, go ahead, Shane. I'm sorry. I guess for modeling purposes, is there a need to separate those out? I mean, you could just be modeling probability of out versus available. And for Kyrie, that's a a very complicated function of injuries and like suspensions and all kinds of other stuff, you know, motivation, et cetera. Whereas for most athletes, I think it would be much more just just driven by injuries. But you still kind of can use his historical record to kind of estimate that probability as well. I don't, I don't know if you necessarily like, is it, is it as as simple as just modeling out versus not. And for him, it's, you know, there's more ways that can happen, but you can still just kind of use this historical data to do it. Yeah, that, that would be one way to do it. And, and then you get into sort of breaking out like types of injuries. You know, certain ones might have more of a predisposition to be repeated versus not mm-hmm. repeated. And that's something that we've done with sort of trying to figure out the lingering effects of a long-term injury and sort of grading injuries based on like, oh, it's an Achilles. Well, that's, you know, traditionally, we've seen some counterexamples recently, but traditionally that has been a real drag on a player's performance going forward, even when they come back. Uh, and so you could actually sort of put the different reasons for absence into different buckets and try to figure that out. But again, the Kyrie one is like such an edge case and such a unique situation with with him that it would be very difficult. You'd have to maybe go back to like, I guess if you're doing a model back in the nineties, like Dennis Rodman would have so carry some oh, you know, probability nice. of yes. missing time for kicking a cameraman or something. So uh, Neil, I have a comment and then kind of let's call it two questions. The comment is I like the fact that you mentioned that in some sense, there's diminishing marginal returns at the upper end of the scale. So I think that's something that people forget about which is in some sense, A, in models of strength, you can argue can only be so strong at some level, or there's there's only one basketball and there's only one set of efficiency. Um, the second thing is typically, you know, in marketing, at least we believe in S-shaped curves where the lower end of the scale, the, the, the slope is flat, the upper end of the scale, the slope is flatter. It's in the middle of the scale where you get the highest ROI. So I just wanted to comment. I'm glad you brought that up. But then I have a question. So you mentioned that you thought that the Mavericks, I thought you said, got the larger boost. Or the, sorry, the, the the Mavericks got the, or the Suns. Suns got the, the Mavericks got a larger boost than the Suns did. Oh, ah, okay. I thought I heard it the other net. way because I would have guessed that because I would think Luca needs more help than the Suns need help. Not that the Suns don't need help, but that Luca's by himself. Now he's got a second superstar to go with. So I agree with that. My question had been, suppose Kyrie Irving went to the Suns, would your model take into account that essentially they'd have three guards 
and that there's only one basketball and how's Chris Paul, Devin Booker and Kyrie Irving going to play together, like in some sense, some sort of interaction, if you'd like. Yeah, the way it would would uh, take into account sort of partially would be by just sort of breaking out positional minute allocation. So you could say like, well, not everyone right. can play point guard. And if someone's not eligible now, some of these players are eligible for multiple positions, but there still would be some sort of you know, diminishing effect to how many minutes they could play per game. What really we don't do, and I've always wanted to do, and I know some models, there's a model out there called LeBron, because we have to name models after either teams or players uh, out there, and they have to have uh, acronyms that just happen to coincide with with the name of a thing in basketball. Uh, but that model actually does account for some of the fit items, and I think that's yeah. another aspect of it that is missing from ours, but I I love the idea of a model uh incorporating that and i think that that is like sort of i think that's what teams are doing internally and i think that that's something that should Should be be done done. as sort of an improvement to any kind of model that's at a player-based level and then you really open up the whole world of possibilities of figuring out okay you got to find a player's role or maybe combination of roles that they can play and then what are the interaction effects as you mentioned between two players in a lineup that have uh, complementary roles versus roles that might be duplicative, and does that? How does that affect the expected net rating of players on the court? But we have seen this, and there's sort of a, a simple way of saying, you know, we've seen this with the Miami Heat when they added LeBron and Chris Bosh to Dwayne Wade. That team, if you had predicted how it would do based on just the ratings of the players independent of each other on other teams and then mashing them together, that team's point differential was nowhere near as good as we would have expected from the component ratings of the players. And we've seen this time and again where you take players from other situations, especially ball-dominant players, and put them together on one team. They don't retain the full effect that they've been able well, to that kind was of show be my question. It's actually a perfect yeah. segue because I think uh, Luca had one of the highest usage rates in the league. Now yeah, it's 38.3%. Well. Yeah. So how do you merge together a ball dominant Kyrie Irving with a Luca Doncic? How do you guys think about that? Well, yeah. And that's one where we're maybe missing some of those overlap factors, but I think with Dallas, this is where it becomes complicated because they don't really have anyone else on the team aside from, you know, maybe Christian Wood. He has a 26% usage rate, but it's in a very different, it's a different kind of 26% usage rate because his assist rate is really low that you almost like it can be good to have that second guy. And maybe Luca won't have the 38% usage rate and he won't average 46 points per 100 team possessions, which is absolutely absurd that we're even, you know, in that territory with him. Um, But that's a case where maybe if you just did that first layer of, okay, we're, coming up with our roles. Both of these guys are primary ball handlers and they both have super high usage rates. And so you might predict that there would be a drag on the efficiency, but then you miss that, that extra layer of nuance that, Hey, this team actually needs two guys like that. And they've been looking for a guy like that. And they lost one, like I mentioned with Brunson, who isn't, quite the player that Kyrie is, but you could definitely see the the effect of having him be absent, maybe not in Luca's own personal stats, but in the Mavericks performance um, uh, just as a, as a whole. So that's like an extra layer of complexity that even if you take care of the first layer, you might miss something else with it. And that's before we even get into the fact that 
both these guys have been in and out of the lineup. And then you talk about the, the advantages of having a guy that duplicates your superstar strengths when your superstar isn't able to play. And in Kyrie's debut, Luca actually wasn't available for the Mavericks. So you sort of got a taste of that uh, already with, uh, with that. So basketball is like, I mean, this is one of the great things about basketball It is because it is such a free flowing game and it's the, one of the ultimate team games. You do have, a lot of these interactions that just are very difficult to model, but I like that they're very difficult to model, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's cool that you can kind of get a range of interactions all the way from like sub additive to super additive, you know, to maybe it all add your, you know, maybe as a modeling choice, you'd model them as additive just because that's probably the average across like all the different situations you could run into, but it's all very contextual. Yeah, totally. Uh, can I can I just respond? I mean, there are lots and lots of ways to model it, but is there one way that seems to fit better? Is there a way to judge the model? And well, well, the plus minus based models have always done better than other models that just look at um, player stats or look only at the like on versus off. Like those holistic models that take into account a combination of player stats like what we'd predict your plus minus to be based on on your individual stats and your actual on versus off impact while accounting for the strength of the players that you played with and against um and then the tracking data which was somewhat new when we added the the that to raptor i think other models are starting to use that as well as well they should but those types of models are the ones that have always traditionally vastly outperformed any of the ones that just try to stick to like one particular component of it. Cause I remember when adjusted plus minus came out, which just looked at, they said, we're not going to use the box score. The box score is tainted. And that's true in a lot of ways, whether it's like, what does one scorekeeper consider an assist versus another scorekeeper in another building? There's a million ways, you know, it doesn't track defense well at all. It doesn't even try. And, and the thought at the time was that a pure, adjusted plus minus that only looks at the performance of the team in the stints that you're on the court versus not on the court and adjust for who you played with was the Holy grail. And the answer turns out that had its limitations too, primarily based on just sample size. And you'll never get the sample size to make that reliable and, and, and improvement over the more holistic models. That's, that's worth emphasizing because I, I was surprised when I heard from the hockey folks, that plus minus was limited in that way that you think it's like this great way to get at things. Um, and it is, but we just don't have the data for it. And it's important when we talk about all these interactions that we recognize how limited we are in our ability to suss those things out. I mean, so Adi, what was that reaction? Because I'm curious what you stats guys think about this, because you think, well, why don't we just model what it means to have, you know, Kyrie and, and Durant, I mean, Kyrie and Doncic together, like, okay, we don't have enough, we don't have enough history to, to really get that. I mean, interaction requires so much more power than the main effects. It does when you, when your interactions are um, over-parameterized. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if you have a, a parameter for every player, then you multiply them for every pairs of players. And now you have more parameters than you have passes. Um, and, and that makes it impossible. So um, my concern is there, is there a better way to do this? Is there a way to find a, a principal component, a, a uh, um, a, a technique, which a cluster analysis, something that makes it reducible in such a way that you can do something. Eric, you're muted. You're dying to get in, but you're muted. 
unusual. Um, this problem, this problem has been studied in marketing ad nauseum. So, for example, you want to understand people's purchasing of SKUs, stock keeping units, like the 32 ounce of Tropicana, et cetera. And there's hundreds of thousands of them in the store. You can't just put an intercept or interaction between all of them in the store. So what do you do? You do feature based on alignment. So what you do is you describe players by a set of characteristics. You reduce the dimensionality of the space. And then you model characteristics and combinations of characteristics, which is of much, much, much lower dimension. I don't know if that's ever been done, Neil, in sports, but in marketing, that's exactly how we dealt with the massive number of interaction problem is by using covariates to describe objects. And I think that's something that cannot really effectively be done at the public level. Uh, perhaps there, if there was like a pro football focus for basketball, that could sort of get down the line. But I guarantee you teams have done that. And I would love to know uh, if there was some attempt to model a pure uh, predicted, you know, point differential or efficiency differential for certain lineups, just totally based on scouting attributes, because the advantage of a team is that they can create those uh, attributes, like you were saying, Eric, uh, of having like this guy is a nine out of 10 shooter or, you know, whatever kind of combination. Uh, maybe they use the 2080 scale like in baseball. Yeah. I don't know what you would do, but basically try to kind of use those particular parameters as either an input on top of all the other data that you're using, because probably that would be best a combination of that. But I do wonder like a pure scouting based, but within a framework of still numbers and predictions, that would probably do quite well, I think, in terms of predicting how a um, a lineup of particular players would do, because the scouts, they know things that the numbers miss. And that's the point of having scouts. And I think that's one of the things that always got missed in that dumb argument, the Moneyball era argument of like, oh, we don't need scouts. We have you know data now. It's like the scouting data is data. It's different data. And that's really actually what we always want is we want data that is independent of the other data we have. So we can do a wisdom of crowds type of merging between the two data sources and acquire extra, you know, predictive power and explanatory power through that avenue. Yeah. The way I kind of think about this sort of issue, and I mean, I've, I've thought about it more in hockey, but it's a similar thing where obviously people are kind of online together is I think about it as like, you know, we're trying to infer essentially the partial effect of any one player kind of over on top of, you know, the other players that are on the, on the uh, ice or on the court. And it's a situation where we've got very high collinearity because pairs of players, we don't have a lot of co-occur, you know, independent occurrences. So, one way to address that kind of with the public data, with, with the with the co-occurrence data that we have, is to do a more sophisticated regression model where maybe you have random effects where you're kind of acknowledging that in most cases we can actually separate out partial effects of individual players if they play too much with other players. What you're suggesting is basically try and build in additional kind of more independent covariates that are beyond kind of the co-occurrence data that we actually have from gameplay to, in order to kind of improve your predictions. So, uh, Neil, I just want to quickly return to your remark about scouting and and your uh, and your reflection on the, the Moneyball history. Um, so, what you're you're accurately pointing out that scouting information is data, and it's just different kind of data, and that the ensemble approach is is quite powerful. But we don't ensemble uh, with the equal weights necessarily. We ensemble which with with data driven weights, if you will, right. and we look back and we see 
which is the what's the right proportion? And I think, you know, um, I, there's always you know, when you talk to people actually out in the field, I mean, managers, data analysts, people working with teams, they don't at all discount the utility of the scout, but they they just recognize that it's a double a different input. But but I've always asked the higher question was, well, what if it turns out that the data from the scout is just less reliable in general? And, and what do you do with that? And to the scout, when you just generally hurt, hear it the other way around. And I think that, that we could potentially add something when we, or the analyst can, could actually look and say, okay, here's your scout. Here's your scout based forecast. Here's your, here's the data uh, driven only. And then here's the combination. What's the right combination that does the best. And we have to advocate for, for our, our methods. You know, it's just too, it's too simple to say that, that it, you know, just average them. Um, and, and so I'm just, what, do you have any reaction to that? I mean, because most of the people out there in the field, just they just say, well, it's just another data source, but that that's kind of sidestep the question. Oh, no, I, I totally agree with you that you wouldn't do like a naive, equally weighted average between the two, because presumably you would have years worth of data from both the scouts and the empirical you know, stats from, from game observations, and you would try to predict, you know, it's like sort of an out of sample prediction exercise where you can figure out the appropriate weights, uh, estimate those to, to give to each that would give you the best predictive power. And then try to check up on that every year or something like that to see if that has changed or if the scouts have gotten better. And, you know, it's constantly changing. And that's another kind of cool thing about it is like the meta of basketball and we see this in all the sports i think i've talked about this on the show before the meta of these these sports but i think particularly basketball over the past i don't know 10 years or so has radically changed from the meta before that and so what would have been the appropriate weights to give to different skills right like shooting uh the three-point shooting that's way less valuable in like the early 2000s than it is right now and there may come a time in which something else is more valuable and you would have to sort of change your opinion of what the weights of different skills are relative to each other based on the era based on the system you're playing. And that's another thing that I think coaches and scouts can kind of help with is if you're playing a particular, you know, like four out one in type of just heavy shooting system in the NBA, you would put more weight on the categories that are pertinent to your style of play than if you're trying to do a lot of like cuts into the lane or a heavy pick and roll and you really would want to focus on like ball handling and screen setting and things like that. So there's also like, that's a whole other universe of possibility that again, I guarantee you teams have done. I don't think I've really seen it in the public uh, sphere of just trying to fit. Like there's a, there's a rating that for a player that's like the platonic ideal rating in an average system with average teammates. And that's actually what something like real plus minus or Raptor or anything like that is trying to represent. But then there's also the rating that a specific player has in a specific lineup on a specific team. And those two ratings can actually be very different from each other. And that's another sort of next frontier okay, of but guys, uh, analysis. Audi, I got to jump in because I've been y'all talk. And on one hand, I appreciate it. On the other hand, I think it's kind of crazy because you're, you're saying that we can know these numbers more precisely than we can know them. And in fact, you're acknowledging that by saying the game changes over time that you deserve different weights, you know, one era than the next era, but it's continually changing. You never, you always have to decay. Whatever data you have, you have to decay. And by the way, you may have a scout in there that you've never had in your data before. You may have a new model or a new source of motion tracking that you don't have years and years on. And so you aren't able 
to estimate these things as precisely. So you're kind of always needing to regress them to something naive. I think we we as statisticians get a little too enamored of our coefficients, and we should probably be a little more humble about they don't need to be quite that precise. And I would be much happier, much happier. I think teams would be better off if they would just blend equally models and scouts. Every NFL team, I think, would be better if they just blend them equally, because right now they're mostly ignoring the, the, on the personnel side the, the, the models. I think it's interesting that you, you, you make that call, and it might be right, and, and humility about our coefficients is probably one of the most important things that not only the, the, the teams and the users have to remember, but we statisticians need to remember that. The world changes so much more quickly than we, we, uh, we imagine. But I'm going to return to the comment you made about the, using the phrase, you actually used it, our style of play or the style of play. Um, we, we have been working with teams in various different capacities, and, and I've talked to, to people at teams for a long time, and they generally um, seem to have their own in-house staff to do the player evaluation. Um, when I always wondered that when there's so much public um, and high quality public information available and the answer always seems to fall back on the fact that our team has different needs and those models are built for the average as would you described it sort of that generic um, sort of average team if that such a thing actually exists and that in that in sports for which play style is really important and and potentially a source of interactive um, interaction um, and very divergence from the average because of interactions. You, you may even argue that you can't use the public systems um, evaluation system because it just won't work for the individual team. And I guess what I wonder about, and maybe this is a project for, for our students and, and our research, what if the public actually tried to address that? Um, is there a, a market for people to absorb? You know, in other words, Kyrie Irving rank rank all the teams. I don't even know how many basketball teams there are. How embarrassing is that? Audi, thirty. Irving. Come on, man. There's thirty. 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 Rank the value of a Kyrie Irving or a Kevin Durant for, for all uh, from all one hundred one to thirty teams, and and show what he would bring to each of those teams. That would be a fascinating result, I think. Oh, completely. Yeah, I I agree with that. And um, there's so much that goes into that because as you're saying that, I'm thinking like. Well, how close to a championship are they? You know, like what are the external factors in addition to play style? So you can even expand that and you can have like an on-court factor and then sort of an off-court of like, if you add him to a team that's not going to make the playoffs, what's the point? Uh, whereas if you add him to a team like Dallas, uh, like you had said, Eric, you know, this S-curve also applies to like playoff odds or championship odds where uh, bumping a team up from, you know, being in the middle of the pack or, or somewhere around like, I don't know, 45 wins per 82 or something, bumping them up to like 50 in talent or something like that, uh, or 55. I don't know how much you would assign to Kyrie Irving, but that can have exponential effects on a team's chance of winning the championship in a sport like basketball, where it really is about the star power on a team that determines who, who has the best odds of winning. By the way, that reminds me of a quote that I just saw an old quote from John Madden, who says the biggest gap in sports is between the winner of the Super Bowl and the loser of the Super Bowl. It just speaks to how convex convex (laughs) that payoff is. Right, right, right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but there are a few more. Eric had a, had a question than Shane and we need to give Neil a bit more time, but then we're going to have to get moving. Eric. Uh, Your last comment, uh, Neil was my question, which is, so what's the, I'm the effect size guy. I've been that on eight and a half years on Moneyball. How much did the Suns really improve? Let's call it their odds of winning the championship. How much did Dallas really improve? I'm sure our listeners would love to know that. 
Well, yeah, the Mavericks, I mean, right now we have them at 7%, uh, but that's a little bit lower than they were uh, about a week ago. They were as high as 18% after Kyrie, uh, and that was a little bit of like a playing time adjustment thing. So that's another way in which, you know, figuring out who else is projected to be in the rotation. But just before all of that, they were at 3%. So you're talking about more than doubling the odds of winning the championship. Whereas for the Nets, they didn't, or the Suns, well, the Nets did change. The Suns did not change all that much. Uh, necessarily they were at five percent before and then today they're at uh roundabout uh i want to say let's uh look at it right now uh they're they're at four percent so it really didn't change them that much and i think that's another thing that was surprising because you add a player of kevin durant's caliber to a team you'd think it would change a tremendous amount as you saw that in the betting markets as well they shot up in in the ranks uh, of the odds to win the championship but some of that had to do with how highly rated the players they sent away were like mikhail bridges he is actually a analytics darling. Uh, and, and you saw that with Cameron Johnson as well. These are guys that, you know, he didn't play that much uh, so far this season, but he has an extremely high uh, Raptor rating and some of these other um, analytical ratings. So that's another case where sometimes you you want that uh, superstar, but then you give away so much depth that it carves away the advantage of, of getting the superstar. I'm not saying that the reaction that our model had of kind of like, eh, no change or not that much change was a appropriate because I think the betting markets are a little more right just based on what we've seen from Kevin Durant but you have to remember he's also injured he's going to be injured past the all-star break and he has a speaking of guys who have history of unavailability so that's another way in which that complicates the calculus around these trades Neil we're going to have to wrap up sadly but we do want to get your comment on the Super Bowl. We know as a as a Philadelphian, at least time in Philadelphia, you we know what side you were pulling for. Any <laughs> any analytical takes for for two days two days on? Well, you know, I think the Chiefs obviously deserve to win based on the offensive display that they put up, and Mahomes was incredible and proved himself to be just like an all-time inner circle quarterback already. Now I will say in the decision to throw the flag, and I'm curious what you guys think, and I know you're talking about it elsewhere on the episode, but my theory, I do agree with the people that said in a big spot, sometimes you do hold that flag and and swallow that whistle. And I think the a combination of the certainty that the referee has that a penalty was committed and also the egregiousness of the penalty that was committed should be factored and weighed against the leverage index of the moment. So if you're less sure about a penalty or you think it's less egregious, maybe a little more what we call ticky tack. In a very high leverage situation like that play, which effectively handed the Super Bowl to the Chiefs, that you might be more reluctant to throw that flag. Because also think about this. This is the ultimate cynical take possibly on it is the referees are employees of the NFL, right? We'd had an incredible Super Bowl up to that point. And think about what would have happened if he didn't throw the flag. You're talking about the Chiefs take a three-point lead. Jalen Hurts gets a chance to drive down the field against the Chiefs under two minutes to go, one timeout left. Either way, it would come down to a classic finish, and probably you could make the case that that finish would have been made this the greatest Super Bowl of all time. But instead, an otherwise amazing Super Bowl was just a clunker of a finish where Mahomes was taking a knee, waiting to run out the clock and then kick the game-winning field goal. The product suffered because the referee threw that flag in that situation on a ticky-tack play. Yeah, and I mean, agree. I mean, I, I think it was ticky tack. I think it is a whole, I mean, yeah, by the definition, it, it was a, a valid penalty. But the fact that it's basically ends the game, 
I yeah. think, you know, you want, I think you want to only end the game on a penalty if it's a very egregious one, but you know, I, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I obviously that's not how the refs think about it or how the refs at least justified it. Can I, can I ask a question? Uh, you just, just want to uh, ask you based on your enormous experience, if 50 is the average holding call on that play and, uh, uh, and, where would this be? Zero would be the 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 lowest actual holding call, and a hundred the highest. Where oh, the percentile for egregiousness. No, I don't necessarily mean the ascent. I want the sort of the rank egregiousness score rank. I just want to uh, this I, percentile can you know everything can cluster at the middle. You never know, right? So what? How bad <laughs> was this? I personally thought it was about like let's say like a twenty out of a hundred or something, where oh, yeah. it's like most of the time when that happens, it doesn't get called. Let's just put it that way. That, right, I think that's thing. Eagles fan, Eagles fan speaking. When, when I think when you when you see the jersey come out in the fist, that's the giveaway. And um, I would I might I'd put it more like forty fiftieth percentile, something like that. Did, did it did he acknowledge that it impeded his his movement? Um, we can go when somebody's doing video. I mean, the defensive uh, back admitted he held. No, he no, he admitted he grabbed the jersey. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. And he didn't state that his grabbing of the jersey was because you remember he's running right next to him, so he's running at the same speed. Um, so if if I grabbed your jersey and I'm holding still, then that would of course impede your jersey, your 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 movement. But if I'm standing next to you and I hold it for that length of time, it's quite probable and quite likely, and seemed video a video that he didn't actually change his direction or impede his progress in any way. All right, guys, we're going to let Neil go. Neil Payne, thank you for being here. Um, good luck with your working through the events of Sunday. We know it's a long road. You've got, <laughs> you've got probably a good 2023 season to look forward to. But thank you for making time for us today. Thank you for having me. And as always, I'm glad in the final moments of my segment that I could kick a hornet's nest of debate up, as always. <laughs> All right, man. Neil Payne, and that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us. After the break, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter open topics segment. All hosts in here. We've covered NBA just now. Long discussion with Neil Payne from 538 about NBA trade deadline, NBA modeling. First half of the show, mostly NFL. Lots of other topics, guys. Lots of other sports. What cut? What has caught your eye other than NFL and NBA? What's caught your eye around the world of sports? Well, I'm happy to jump in. I mean, there was a big golf tournament this weekend. Uh, it's big for as everybody knows more of the party celebration. But it turned out, of course, the golf tournament, the Phoenix uh, Waste Management Open, was in the same city as the Super Bowl, which right. made it crazy interesting, interesting for a lot of sports fans. But you know, Scotty Scheffler, our Texas guy, won the tournament. Mm-hmm. He's back to back two years in a row. Um, he's now back to number one in the world. Um, again, beating one of the toughest fields in golf. McElroy played, John Rahm played, you know, all the t- Justin Thomas played. Um, I say again that this last 12 months, because it all started Scotty Scheffler 12 months ago. I think he had no tournament wins maybe 12 months ago. And now he's got this tournament twice. Of course, he won the Masters. I think he's won five or six tournaments at least in mm-hmm. 12 months. And it shows you, you know, we've talked about this before. He's locked in. Whatever mechanically is happening, he seems to be very locked in. And I see no reason why he wouldn't be the favorite at many tournaments coming up. That's kind of the first thing that caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is, you know, this week is the Genesis Open in L.A. and Tiger Woods is playing. 
And mm-hmm. so this is the first tournament he's playing, I think, since the British. Um, and, you know, he says he's still hobbled, but he feels like he's ready to play. So we'll see what happens there. I mean, he's 47, which always puts the base rate low anyway. Forget whether he was fully healthy and he had been playing consistently. We're talking about a 47-year-old person who's played maybe 10 tournaments in the last three years who, you know, is injured. So I don't know what to expect. I would think I have to look at the betting line, but I've got to believe him making the cut has to be below 50%. If it's not, that would be surprising to me. Mm-hmm. So just a note, the, 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 I'm entertained by the sponsors. We're calling the the, you know, the waste management. It's, it's a good, good, good press for them. I mean, that's a, that's one of the prestigious non-major golf tournaments and they're getting called out. And then the Genesis Open, of course, that's the one they're playing at Riviera. I think they've played that at Riviera. Exactly. It's a Riviera. Um, so good fun. Uh, kind of the beginning of the really kind of the beginning of the professional season out there. Um, all right. So that's on the golf side. I know that where did Rom finish on that? I know, I know, I know Rufus liked Rom coming in. I mean, not to win the thing, but he had the shortest odds of anybody. He was in the final grouping. Um, and I think, as I remember, I, th- I don't think he had a great final round, but I think he only finished like third or fourth. You yeah. know, a real bad showing for John Rom. Well, you know, he's been about it's his heater has lasted a little longer than the typical heaters. He's been on one for a couple of years now. It's just a real tear. You know, what's one of the things about golf I'd love to get someone to talk about is I have to admit when I see John Rom, and, you know, let's be honest, he's more shaped like Jack Nicklaus than he is Tiger Woods. Um, And we've had people. No, no, I'm just saying I'm not saying John Rom's not in shape. He doesn't look strong, but one of the bottom heavy. Yeah, he's, he's, he's pear shaped. I mean, he's a yeah. great. We say in this a spectrum about between Tiger Woods and Craig Stadler. He's well, Stadler would be another one. But I mean, <laughs> it would be great to get someone that talks about the physiology of a golf swing because Jack Nicholas has always said one of the things that allowed him to play so well for so long was just, in some sense, the you know his body type just wasn't reliant on you know great physical exertion in that way. And that, you know, in some sense, this kind of roundish body type is very conducive to long golf careers. And so I, when I look at John Rahm, I mean, not the accomplishments yet, but I have to admit, I see Jack Nicholas and I compare him to Brooks Kepka, or, you know, I compare him to Tiger Woods and I compare him to even Rory McIlroy. And I'm just like, I'm so impressed with it. I don't know why it, it makes me so happy. Maybe because that's my shape. Maybe I'm so happy about it. <laughs> yeah, well, the only Scotty, Scotty Shepard might be in the same category, huh? It is, yes. I think the analogy that I kind of comes to mind when you start talking about that is like certain baseball pitchers have also like actually maintained mm-hmm. a larger weight because it kind of that's sort of their mechanic. I, I think a CC Sabathia who like you know his mechanics and everything and his longevity he actually attributed to his kind of roundedness and and, and greater weight. So I, it's it's interesting. Well, centrifugal force, man. You get that weight twisted and then it just it carries you through. Um, that's, but you're right. It'd be a good a physiological biomechanical conversation at some point. All right. Uh, Eric takes golf. Shane, what do you got? Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll update us a little bit on what's going on in hockey. I mean, I'll, first of all, kind of, you know, to, to connect with our previous shows, we've obviously been following the Boston Bruins along because they've been on pace for a historical season. It's they've fallen off a little bit. It's still on a historical pace, but just barely. They're now, um, you know, they're basically uh, 52 games in, they're 39, eight and five. Um, so they are right on pace for 
62 wins, which would tie the Tampa Bay Lightning's wins record. They're on pace for 132 points, which would tie the Canadians' record. But they are falling off in the sense that they were way beyond those historical rates prior, and they're kind of dropping. So we'll sort of see what happens there. But another sort of historical thing that's happening that I think is I'm even more confident uh, we'll actually realize at the end of the season is that Eric Carlson, who's who's a, a defenseman for the San Jose Sharks, is on pace to become to score over 100 points as a defenseman. And that hasn't happened in 30 years. And and so that's something kind of worth noting. It's been, you know, Bobby Orr, Paul Coffey, some historical greats used to do it relatively routinely. But this could be the first 100-point season for a defenseman since the early 90s. And he only okay. needs – he's scored 73 points so far in about 50-some games. He only needs 27 points – in his final 28 games. Okay. So even with fall off, he should be able to hit that. Yeah. Yeah. Shane, calibrate us a little bit. How, how often, how many on average, an average NFL, NHL season, how many players at all? I assume they're all frontline players typically, but how many players will exceed hundred points in a season? Oh, that's a good question. I would say maybe 10 forwards. Okay. All right. I think I'll just look out as we're, as we're talking so talk about that. a defenseman getting yeah. into the top 10 or 15, maybe top 20 yeah. um, at the outside of the scoring in the league. Um, that, that is interesting. Wow. Is it, is, does a lot of that come on when, when a defenseman scores that much, is, how much of that is special teams? How much of that is on um, power play? Often it's special teams, uh, but often it's, it's also a sign just kind of, it's almost like Eric Carlson's kind of a, a throwback to a bygone era where, um, you know, we had more kind of high scoring defensemen. So Paul Coffey, for example, is one that I grew up with. Yeah. And played for yeah, the yeah. Edmonton Oilers were obviously that was a team that in general scored a lot of points. He so he was an example of a defenseman that scored over 100 points routinely. But if you look at his plus minus on some of those seasons, it's like right at zero. And Eric Carlson's plus minus is like negative one. And so you okay. got to think like, well. That's kind of weird for a defenseman that, you know, you're scoring that many points, but that kind of implies you're letting up a lot of points, yeah, which yeah. is probably not your primary thing. Bobby Orr is really the only one that I know of that scored a ton of points, but also maintained essentially a very strong defensive presence as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that, you know, you can kind of have that trade. It's hard to jointly optimize those two things. Bobby Orr is really the only one to accomplish it. Usually when you see high scoring defensemen, defense itself is being sacrificed a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, Shane, thanks for bringing us up when they're hockey. I was going to, you know, my, my uh, I'm paying attention only to one thing. Now the four, my four favorite words of the uh, English language pitchers and catchers report, which is mm-hmm. tomorrow, or actually as this airs, uh, this will be the day it reports uh, Wednesday, February 15th. Uh, most, most teams. Um, so I'm starting to think about baseball. Um, sad to see football go, but starting to move on. And, and Shane, you were talking about defense and hockey. And uh, last week we had a really interesting conversation about, you know, what predicts championships. We had this great grid we were looking at, and it was fascinating. We didn't mention that defense seems to play no predictive role whatsoever on who wins the World Series. Um, so hold on, but hold on Adi, you're, you're, you're being oddly and uncharacteristically imprecise because those weren't predictions, which implies out of sample. That was just... No, they were just, they were, they were historical re- reflections on, on what yep. won yeah. the championships. I think um, it's almost a necessary thing in the sense that like, Offense clearly is the most predictive aspect of baseball. Descriptive, descriptive, descriptive yeah. aspect of baseball that predicts championships, and there is a negative correlation between offense and defense. 
in position, yeah. Thing, right? Yeah, that's actually an, an interesting an interesting description of why it observed. So what what we were looking at was uh, the the ordinal rankings of the teams in various different qualities on both sides of the the ball, pitching and pitching and offense and defense thrown in, and and you obviously need you need offense and you need pitching, and they both both matter. But defense was uh, was flat at 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 the mean, fifteen sixteen for, for on average in median for all the teams historically, and you have to wonder. That's a good point. That because you need you need offense, you probably have to ha- have to almost necessarily have weak weaker defense. Um, so maybe maybe defense is something you, you obviously you want to pursue it. But I was actually thinking about it from perspective of not still not being able to to measure it properly. And that's one of the things that has always been a difficulty in baseball that Shane and I have worked on years ago. And 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 I guess I reflect on it. The baseball prospectus has a new measure, yet another measure of fielding um, prominence. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe that'll be potentially more accurate and useful, um, than the ones that currently exist, which haven't been particularly, um, stable or predictive, or I don't think all that, all that, you know, uh, uh, efficient at capturing what's actually going on on the, on the field. So Adi, let me ask you a follow-up question to that one quickly. One is if we looked at a bivariate scatter of offensive performance, on a let's say a reasonable metric and defensive performance on a reasonable metric are those things positively correlated in baseball are players that are better offensive players better defense or are they negatively correlated what do you guys know about this i I'm think sure our listeners would love correlated. to know it's so negatively what? correlated negatively correlated All right, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna stand back and say i think shane has a point and it's probably to a degree because you know the big pappies of the world the john carlos stanton's but you know, athleticism tends that to. That was my question. Hand, okay. hand, hand, right. And so the Mike Trout's of the world is a fantastic fielder. I'm not so quick. I mean, it's, it, I, you it, know, it, there's correlate. It's it's it's. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm talking at the population level. Just look at how we think about the positions. Yeah. What are our top defensive positions? Are they not the lowest scoring, lowest offensive positions? Yes. They are without yeah. a question, right? So the, and the good defense comes from the. But you think that I guess what you're 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 you're. I mean, I, what I would essentially say is if we if we control for position, is there a negative correlation between offense and defense? And then if you just look at the at the at the defense Great analysis, uh, and then if we look at it at the yeah. team level, is there a negative correlation between offense and defense? They're different, very different questions. You know what? I think we can do it. I'm going to put some. I'm going to put some <laughs> students on this. Maybe we'll have an answer within a week or two. You know, it also just quickly, Adi, in ten seconds, it reminds me of the story. Like when you look at a school like the University of Pennsylvania, which we're all employees of, and look at the correlation between GPA and first year grade point average, it's flat, if not negative, and that's because in the upper tail of the district distribution there's no relationship but as Shane said in the population there's a very strong distribution and so it may well be by position there isn't a relationship but overall on the team there is I agree with you that's a fascinating way to look at it guys one last topic before we roll out of here the NFL announced its latest hall of fame class and it's a big one there are I think nine players and or coaches in that class anybody in particular jump out to you from that list Yeah, to me, two people. One, a coach. Um, I think Don Coriel was the architect of what we would call the, you know, major passing game in football. And he he gets credit and they call it Air Coriel. Air Coriel. Um, And then from the player's point of view, I mean, maybe I'm biased because I grew up in New York, but, you know, Revis Island was a real thing. Mm -hmm. People can tell me whatever they want, but, you know, Darrell Revis and Deion Sanders and Daryl Green are the three best cornerbacks I've seen in my lifetime that could literally take a player out of the game. 
And so to me, Zach Thomas, great player. DeMarcus Ware, great player. Joe Thomas maybe was should have been Thomas Island for the offensive lineman. Joe Klecko had some great years. But to me, Darrell Rivas is a first-tier Hall of Famer, and he was an extraordinary player. Yeah, and I mean, I I kind of, I agree. I mean, I, you know, just kind of looking, you know, the other player you didn't mention, Rondé Barber. I mean, I'm sure you've got like very positive feelings towards Rondé, but I mean, here's an example, him versus Revis. I'm very happy uh, both of them are in the Hall of Fame, but one is very clearly in the first tier, Daryl Revis. Uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, I think Rondé is kind of- I, I should I have mentioned Rondé. Deserving of the Hall of Fame, but is not in that, you know, neck, like first tier. Not in the slightest. They're in the same building, but they're not on the same floor. I just want to acknowledge that, Adi, you've got a jet in here. I can't do that. I know. Well, Joe Klecko is a jet, but Dow Rebus played for the Jets, too. Well, I was saying, like, and the Patriots won a Super Bowl with the Patriots. So, Klecko was practically a career jet, was he not? He was. Yes, he was. Um, We need to do something on Check Alley at some point to remind everybody, but I, especially Eric, Don Coriel jumped out to me uh, on that list. Just we grew up with the impact that he made. All right, guys, that's been another two hours, another Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. Thank you guys for listening. Special thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man, and Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Come back and join us next time between now and then. For the whole crew here, enjoy your sports.